Last Sunday, we took time to meditate together through the first word of the ten words, if you were with us, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God says there, just as a reminder, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we might say that the first word of the ten words, first word of Exodus 20, is about worshiping the right God. And now the second word in verses 4 through 6, which we'll be looking at today, is about worshiping the right God in the right way. Worshiping the right God in the right way. In other words, the second word of the ten words is about propriety in worship. It tells us that God demands certain boundaries, certain limits in our worship of him. It's about worshiping him the right way. We need to understand out front today that worship is not an anything-goes sort of activity. What we notice in Scripture is that God is not always pleased with the worship that people bring to him. God accepted Abel's worship, but had no regard for Cain's. God ended the lives of Nadab and Abihu for their unauthorized worship. God severely chastised King Saul and punished Saul through his prophet Samuel for Saul's carelessness in worship. God struck down Uzzah for his carelessness in worship. God was provoked to anger because of the false worship of Jeroboam. And God afflicted King Uzziah with leprosy for his improper worship. And some of the Corinthians, for their irreverent worship at the table of the Lord were afflicted with illnesses and weaknesses and even death. Worship, we need to understand, is not a free-for-all. God commands certain parameters for worship. God has expressed his desires for the way in which we worship him, and whatever we do when we bring our worship to God must have biblical warrant. Worship needs to be approached biblically and thoughtfully and carefully. The second word of the ten words is a word about worshiping God the right way. Let's take time again to read the second word, and then we will do some meditation through its corridors Together. Beginning at Exodus 20, verse 4, we read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, there have been people over the years who have looked at verse 4 of this text in particular And they have tried to argue that here we have a sweeping prohibition of absolutely all forms of artwork. That is, these people say, absolutely every image, uh, whether the image is used for religious purposes or artistic purposes or educational purposes, Every image is prohibited by Exodus 20, verse 4. All artwork is prohibited by the second commandment. So goes the argument. Well, there are two essential problems with that argument. Number one, in this same book of Exodus, God commands Moses and Israel to make artwork. The tabernacle was to be adorned with cherubim that were to be made of hammered gold and designs that included depictions of flowers and fruit were also to be included in tabernacle worship by order of God. For that matter, over in Numbers 21, God commands Moses there to fashion a bronze snake. More artwork. And of course, under the kingship of Solomon, the temple was constructed using designs of lilies and gourds and fruits and bulls and lions, etc. It would make little sense for God to prohibit all artwork in one place of Scripture, here in Exodus 20, and then command the making of artwork in several other places of Scripture, in the tabernacle construction and the like. But the second basic problem with claiming that the second commandment is about prohibiting all artwork is that it's simply a bad reading of the text. It's a bad reading of the text. Let's look carefully at what God is saying here, and there are two things to point out. First, The Hebrew word in the original text that we translate into English as carved image is a word that specifically describes an object that would be used for idolatrous religious purposes. The word is not describing artwork in general. It is describing specifically an object whose use is for religious, idolatrous purposes. And then secondly, notice in verse 5 that the concern God has specifically is that people not bow down to these carved images and likenesses. That people are not to worship or serve these carved images and likenesses. So that the precise issue of this second word of the ten words, and I want us to listen carefully, 
The issue is not the banning of all artwork. The issue is rather the making of images and likenesses for the purpose of worshiping those images and likenesses. That's the issue that God is focused on here, the making of images and likenesses for the purpose of worshiping those images and likenesses. We are free. I want you to hear me carefully here. We are free in Christ to paint pictures and sculpt sculptures and draw sketches and the like, providing that those pieces of artwork are not bowed down to and served in worship. Are you with me? Now, as we pointed out last Sunday, the air you breathed, if you lived in the ancient Near East, where this commandment first came, the air you breathed was the air of polytheism. That is, if you lived in the ancient Near East, chances were exceptionally high that you believed in more than one God even in a multiplicity of gods, which is why we said the command to have no other gods before me would have been so radical to the original audience. But a further aspect in the religious life of ancient Near Easterners was the sheer prevalence, the sheer prevalence of carved images and physical idols that were used to worship the various gods. These things were everywhere. Everybody had statues and little talismans and images and carvings that they would use in their worship. And what was the prevailing belief about these idols? To borrow the imagery of Doug Stewart, and I like this, The people believed that these idols were something like television cameras. Listen, if I stand in front of a CBC television camera and speak, I am confident that that television camera will capture and transmit my words to another location to a TV in somebody else's living room. As the people brought their offerings and their prayers to their idols, they believed that the idol, though it was not God himself or herself, they knew the difference, but they believed that the idol was like an empowered transmission device that housed the very essence of the deity. The belief was, as Doug Stewart says, that offerings and prayers brought before an idol were fully and unfailingly perceived by the God whom that idol represented. We might put it like this. For the ancient Near Easterner, The God was the reality, but the idol embodied the reality. And the idol was thought of as a mediator 
between the people and the God who was embodied in the idol. The image or the idol mediated the presence of the deity. That was the belief. And in the process of a person crafting an idol, there was normally an elaborate and very careful ritual that was involved when they were crafting these things. There was a ritual for purifying the materials that were used. And when the image was brought to completion, the workman, in a symbolic way, would motion as if he were cutting off his hands. And then he'd take the tools that had been used in the process of making the idol and ritually and symbolically he would throw those tools into the river all as if to say, this image was not made by a human being. It has come down to us from heaven. Well, our God showed up in thunder and in fire that day on Sinai, and he said to his people, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Again, God's concern here in this second word is specifically that his redeemed people, freshly redeemed out of Egypt, that they not make objects for the purposes of bowing down to those objects and serving them and worshiping them. No idol worship. Certainly no representations of other supposed gods in the ancient Near East are to be bowed down to and served. But also no representations of the true God are to be constructed and bowed down to and served. We are not to make icons, images, representations of any deity whatsoever for the purposes of bowing down to it and serving it. Now, it is perhaps, I want you to think through something with me here. It's perhaps instructive for us to think again about the tabernacle and the temple, just for a second. We noted earlier that God commanded artwork in the tabernacle and in the temple, but none of that artwork was to be worshipped. And have you noticed that where God was in the tabernacle and in the temple, namely in between the cherubim on the top of the ark, there was simply a space nothingness. That is, where God dwelt in the tabernacle and temple, there was absolutely no representation of him. Just a space between the cherubim. And why? Because, friends, nothing in creation can adequately come close to representing God. More on that in just a moment. But we want to continue here by asking the why question of our text. Why exactly did God expressly forbid carved images and likenesses for use in worship? What is the reason 
or the reasons. And there are at least six main reasons for this prohibition that I would like to mention this morning. First of all, and most immediately, God provides a clear reason why his people are not to make images and bow down to images. And he provides it right there in verse 5. Look at the text with me. God says, don't make images or likenesses to bow down to them, serve them. And why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is the reason here for him forbidding idol-making and idol-use. Last Sunday, we alluded to the fact that Israel's relationship to Yahweh, to the true God, can be compared to a marital relationship. This relationship was an exclusive covenant between two partners. If one marital partner is unfaithful, it provokes jealousy in the other partner. If Israel were to carve images and use those images for worship, God would be jealous. As Victor Hamilton has put it, idolatry becomes a form of adultery. Idolatry becomes a form of adultery, violating that sacred nexus between lovers by substituting gods and images for God. Mark Rooker says, we may understand the jealousy of God as his fervent and passionate protection of what is rightfully his. His fervent and passionate protection of what is rightfully his. Again, God's jealousy is passionate, right? And it is flowing out of the love of God that he has for his people. Rooker says, he will not transfer the honor that is due him to something else. He will not tolerate the worship of any other God. And friends, we need to understand this. God's jealousy is for our own good. Amen? It is for our own good. God seeks the highest good for us. And what's the highest good for us? It's Him. He seeks the highest good for us. And when idols are brought into the relationship, that good is obstructed or threatened. And God will not tolerate rivals for our own good. We notice in verse 5 that God's jealousy provokes judgment on idolaters. God says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. In other words, an idolater's sin will have negative effects not just on the individual who practices idolatry, but on his or her community also. In the longest of lives in the ancient Near East, you would live to see the third and possibly the fourth generation. 
The idea here is that your idolatry would have an effect on your children, a negative effect on your children, your grandchildren, and if you live to see them, also your great-grandchildren. Your idolatry would affect your whole extended family. However, on the other hand, as God says in verse 6, he would show his chesed, his steadfast love, or we can translate it unrelenting covenant love, to thousands, and probably here we are to understand thousands as thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice how thousands in verse 6 contrasts so sharply with 3 and 4 in verse 5, where only 3 and 4 generations would experience judgment for idolatry. Thousands of generations would experience God's loyal love as they obeyed him. In verses 5 and 6, it becomes very obvious. We like to focus on verse 5 because we're not sure about it. But it becomes very obvious that God's loyal love in verse 6 is the main thing. The punishment described in verse 5 is a sort of lesser thing, though still a real thing. Well, again, friends, God's jealousy is reason number one why God expressly forbids carved images and likenesses for use in worship. Reason number two for God forbidding these things is that idols imply limitation. Idols imply limitation. What do I mean? Well, look again at verse 4 with me. In verse 4, God says that no image or likeness of anything, where? In heaven, earth, or water is to be made and used for worship. Those terms, heaven, earth, and water, come straight out of Genesis chapter 1. They refer to things that God made. Things that exist because of God, but are underneath God. Yes? God, you see, transcends creation. Everything in creation is but a fingerprint of God, including you and I, but it is not God. Rather, it it is just a fingerprint. It's, and it, neither is it an extension of God somehow. God stands outside creation as creator. That's what the Bible teaches over and over again. So that if I make a carved image or likeness out of something within creation, which I will, That's what I have to do if I make a carved image or idol. And I use that thing for worship. What I'm really saying is, this thing in creation that I have made can represent God. But that is categorically false. Nothing on earth or in the heavens or in the waters can even hope to adequately represent the God who transcends creation. Are you with me? 
Whatever idol we make from created stuff will be far and away way too limited. And related to this is the fact that if I were to fashion an image or idol to look specifically like a bull, for example, I would be trying to represent God as a God of power. Bulls are powerful. But in doing that, I would forget that God is also lamb-like and that God is a consuming fire and that God is a God who washes feet as a servant and that God is a king on a throne and that God is a suffering servant etc., etc. The point is, no one idol could ever hope to be an adequate and thorough representation of God. It could never paint the entire picture because by its nature it is far too limited. The use of a single image that is made to look like a specific thing automatically distorts and limits our view of God. Well, the third reason why God expressly forbids carved images and likenesses for use in worship is that idols imply control. Idols, images, imply control. Al Mohler gives us the idea here very well. He says this, we can pick an idol up and we can put an idol down. We can move an idol to this place and then we can remove it to another place. The idol is at our disposal. Yeah, this was entirely problematic. Idols can be packed up and they can be put in your backpack. Idols can be put on the top shelf of your closet, if you like. You can manipulate and you can control a carved image. Meanwhile... The real and living God is completely and utterly free and sovereign. And he refuses, you need to know, he refuses to be domesticated or controlled. No one has control over God. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is free. He is not subject to human manipulation or human control. No created idol can ever succeed in representing God because idols by nature limit God and they try to box God in in a way that he will not be limited And he will not be boxed. The fourth reason why God expressly forbids carved images and likenesses for use in worship is because idols are totally and utterly lifeless. They are totally and utterly lifeless. Yahweh, the true God, is the living God who has revealed himself in the crucified and risen and living Jesus Christ. He is the living God, while pieces of wood, stone, silver, and gold are 
lifeless. The prophets say in more than one place that idols are deaf and mute. They are blind. They are unable to feel. They are unable to walk. And they are permanently asleep. They are lifeless. The question is, how can what is lifeless represent the one who is alive? To paraphrase Chris Wright, how can something that does nothing in any animated way represent the God who does all things? God expressly forbids idols because they are totally lifeless. The fifth reason why he forbids idols is specifically because they are speechless. Now, of course, speechlessness would be part of lifelessness, right? For sure that's the case. But speech is such an important part of what the real God does that we single it out here. And the prophets often do as well. Idols are speechless. They are voiceless. They are mute. Idols cannot talk. But what does the true God do? The true God makes himself known by his word, by revealing himself through language. God, the living God, the real God, speaks. Chris Wright says, as the speaking God, Yahweh reveals, addresses, promises, challenges, confronts, demands. And so what happens if I make a speechless, mute idol? What happens is that if I do that, I make an idol that is necessarily speechless, and I turn my attention to that idol in worship, it is really an attempt on my part to gag and stifle God. Chris Wright again says, idolatry is fundamentally an escape from the living voice and commands of the living God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in all creation, for this reason also, that idols are speechless. Well, the sixth and final reason that I'd like to point out as to why God expressly forbids carved images and likenesses for use in worship, is that idols diminish human dignity. Not only are idols an offense to God, they diminish human dignity. How so? Well, what we notice, importantly, very importantly, what we notice in Genesis chapter 1 is that God made human beings in his own what? Image. As human beings, we are the only part of creation said to be imaging Almighty God. There is a special dignity about human beings that has been divinely designed in that we image forth God. So if we go ahead and we make carved images and likenesses out of wood and out of stone, and out of precious metals, and we worship those things, what we are doing, as John Frame has pointed out, is we are worshiping something that is both less than God and less than ourselves. You see that? 
Frame says, to create idols and to use them in worship is an affront to God's dignity and also an affront to humanity's dignity. Friends, the sum of all six points that we've just worked through is that the making and the use of graven images is an attempt to relegate the God who is unlimited to his limited creation. The making and use of idols is an attempt to localize the God who is not localizable. The making and use of idols is an attempt to make material and make temporal the God who is eternal. The making and use of idols is an attempt to run from the God who pours forth speech and who commands. The making and the use of idols is an attempt, really, to dethrone God from his rightful place as sovereign of the universe. Now, you've listened up to this point, and you might be saying, all this is well and good for an ancient culture that was prone to fashion material idols for worship. I don't do that in 2019, so how is any of this relevant for my life this week? Well, I'm glad you asked. Listen, the truth is that even if you and I have never carved a physical idol or statue or likeness, we are still intensely prone to crafting idols and distorting God in our minds and in our hearts. In our fallenness, We are prone to craft for ourselves a God to our liking who may bear little resemblance to the true God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. For example, I'll give you some examples. Some of us may prefer a God who is always and forever smiling on us. We stick to that image resolutely. And we never entertain the thought that in reality, sometimes God might be frowning on us. Or conversely, others of us are stuck in the idea that God always frowns on us and could never possibly be pleased with us. Both of those are misrepresentations of God. They are inadequate, distorted pictures of God. Or, here's another one, some of us have a distorted idea of God in that we conceive of him more in alignment with cultural trends than he actually might be. The point here is that maybe we have preconceived ideas about God that we would like. We would like him to be this way. And we stay there and we don't open ourselves to the possibility that we might have idolatrous ideas of God that are not borne out by Scripture and that maybe need a good smashing 
Others of us may uncritically assume that our church tradition or our denomination has the market cornered on God. (laughs) This is a dangerous one. That God cannot possibly really be bigger than the traditions and teachings of our denomination, can he? Others of us prefer a Jesus who is always a lamb, but never a lion. Or we might prefer a Jesus who is mainly the mighty king on the throne, but not as much the humble servant who washes our feet. Or we might like Jesus meek and mild, but not really as much as the divine warrior who makes war against his enemies. The second word, friends, the second word of the ten words has direct application still for each and every one of us. As New Testament believers living in 2019, we are admonished in the New Testament to do what? To flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10:14. Idolatry is a work of the flesh, Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20. And we are called to put it to death, Colossians 3, verse 5. In fact, they, there are, we need to understand this, there are dire warnings in the New Testament about idolaters not inheriting the kingdom of God. In places like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Ephesians 5, 5. We need to take those warnings entirely seriously and with a great deal of spiritual sobriety. But here's the good and great news. You ready? God in his love, God in his grace, because God knows our propensity for crafting images, God has gone ahead and he has given us the only image for worship that we will ever need. We must not make images for worship, but God in his freedom can do that. And he has given us his image for worship. Jesus Christ, says Colossians 1.15, is The what of the invisible God? Image of the invisible God. Jesus, says 2 Corinthians 4.4, is the image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact imprint of God's nature, says Hebrews 1 verse 3. How do we flee from idolatry? We do it by fixing our eyes on the image that God wants us to worship, who is the living Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And remembering the six points that we made earlier, Jesus comes into our midst as the bridegroom who jealously loves his bride, the church. Jesus made all things in heaven, earth, and sea. As creator, he stands outside his creation, and yet Jesus has stepped inside his creation as God's image to redeem creation. And far from being lifeless, 
Far from being speechless, this image named Jesus is alive and he gives life and he is full of speech and commands and blessings. And far from diminishing human dignity, like other images do, this image of God named Jesus exalts human dignity by the fact that he takes on human flesh. Again, friends, no man-made image or idol can ever represent God even partway accurately, and so God has given us his own image, a perfect and full reflection and manifestation of himself, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus goes to the cross for idolaters who have broken the second word like you and I. He goes to the cross to deal with our idolatry and to forgive us our sins. And now the New Testament tells us that as we behold his glory, as we read of him in scripture, and as we look at him in his word, and as we fix our eyes on him, and as we pray to him and commune with him, we are being transformed into the same what? Image. Out of our sin-tarnished selves into God's image, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. By his spirit, God is remaking the believer. He is refashioning us, deleting every sinful crevice in his image bearers. As J.V. Fesco has put it so memorably, listen to this. He says, we do not make images of God, for God is making images of himself in us. One more time. We, don't, we do not make images of God, for God is making images of himself in us. This week, I want to encourage you to pray down his help. Pray down his help to smash every idolatrous notion that yet resides in you. And I encourage you to regroup this week and fix your eyes afresh on the image of God named Jesus and so be renewed in your mind and in your heart. This day and this week, may each of us be doers of the second word and not hearers only. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are reminded that it is sheerly out of your grace and your goodness toward us and your love for us that you have given the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. These are a grace to your people. We thank you, Lord, for revealing these things to us because otherwise we wouldn't know about them. And you, you Lord, have given these words again as life for us. They are not drudgery. They are not a law hanging over our head like a baseball bat. Lord, these are grace and these are life. And so we thank you. And in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we pray your help this week to be obedient to what you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.